Thank you for joining the Relief from Grief podcast by Mrs. Miriam Ribiat and Hevra Lomde Mishnah. Our goal is to help you find the chizik you may need and the comfort of knowing that you are not alone. To sponsor an episode, visit hevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast and bring comfort to listeners like you. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me here today on the Relief from Grief podcast. Today's podcast is sponsored by Eloy Nishmas Ruvain Ben Chaim. And for anyone who's interested in sponsorship opportunities, you can reach out to me to mrbiatafhevrelomdemishnah.org. Okay, so today we have Mrs. Barbara Ben Susan, who is a well-known journalist for many from publications and a novelist as well. And I'm so glad that you came on. Thank you so, so much for coming on. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So I guess we'll start off with talking about your daughter, your adult daughter that was Nifter. I just want to tell the listeners because I I don't know news. I don't know things. But I remember when your daughter was in the hospital and hearing the story and like davening and thinking about her and wondering like how the whole family was just surviving. But I didn't know it was your daughter until I spoke to you a few weeks ago. So I was just, I'm like, I still can't stop thinking about it. So I guess if you could tell us a little bit what happened. So, yes, I think there was a tremendous wave of community support because it's just the kind of nightmare that no family wants to go through. My daughter was 28 years old. She was giving birth to her third child when she had something called an amniotic embolism, which is very rare, like one in 80,000 cases or something. And it shut down her heart and her lungs. And they managed to save the baby. They worked all night to try to save her, which they sort of just barely did. She had a lot of traumatic brain injury because her heart stopped for such a long time. And I put her into a coma. And she was in a coma for about four months until she was ultimately nifter. But it was quite a journey. <laughs> and uh, yeah, the whole world, because it was a young mother and she was a Mora and her husband had worked in Chinuch also. And everybody knew them and everybody loved them. And nobody could believe that, that this had happened to her, much less us, obviously. Right. You always hear that like bad things happen to good people and you know, like you don't think it's gonna be you. Right. You, know, you don't think it's gonna be you. <laughs> or it also happens to other people. <laughs> it happens to other good people, not to you. Right. <laughs> wow. So after she was niftered, like did you wonder like what happened to all this tefillas and all this kabbalas and all that like support? Like where did it go? Hmm. I I guess. I think medically her prognosis was not terrific. At the beginning, like the first week or so, she really was teetering between life and death. And as I said, there was this huge spiritual movement to like, like, let's save Mimi Shama, you know, and there were Asifas and she got sick, like right before Hanukkah. And like Zeus Hanukkah, there was a minion of men who learned all night in her. And my son-in-law was running around to every Gadol and, and Rebbe under the sun. And there was a rabbi who took a minion of men to pray Kivrei Tzidikim in Eastern Europe and in, wow. in Israel. Like people were doing these crazy things, shaitel cutting parties, you know, Sneas gatherings. Rabbi Wallerstein made an amazing asifa. But people were taking on all of these things. And it was in many ways, like very spiritually uplifting. Like it was, I think back on that period, almost like Yom Kippur. Like, mm-hmm. All you're focused on is praying, praying, praying for a good gazera, you know, and that's your whole focus is talking to Hashem all the time. 
And, you know, a lot of people made big changes in their lives. Like I always say, I feel there are rabbis who didn't accomplish in a lifetime what she accomplished in those four months because so many people were motivated to make take things on and make changes in her in her schools. Wow. It's amazing. It's really amazing. And I don't, like, I'm not Hashem. In case you didn't know, I'm not Hashem. So I don't really know what's going on. But I feel like, you know, all those tefillas and everything, like they're going to filter down to the children. Like those children in Hashem are going to have so much like Seattle Deshmaya because besides that, their mother is so close to Hashem. Like, I don't know, like look, look what went on for them, for their mother. I don't know. That's just my personal feeling. <laughs> I hope so. They certainly got a lot of spoiling afterwards. And But, you know, there are people who came to the Shiva who said to me, my mother died when I was, you know, four or six or whatever. And it works out. You'll see. It takes some time, but you can grow up normal and happy right. when it happens to you. So, I mean, Baruch Hashem, my daughter and son-in-law lived near me, and his parents also lived in the area. So those kids had a tremendous amount of support after this happened. Like Every day after school, they, it just so worked out that the girls go to school across the street from where I live. So every day after school, they'd come to my house, which was good for them and good for me. Yeah. They'd have their snack, do their homework, and then their father would pick them up, and then they'd go to his mother for dinner. Oh, wow. You know, and then, like, Shabbos, they'd be there by us or by my son-in-law's parents, and everybody was, like, on board helping out. It was like they really, it took a village, and the village really, wow. you know, rose and to help. no friction between you and your son-in-law. There wasn't, like, differences that caused, that's amazing. Uh, I think we got much closer, actually, you know, going through this together. Wow, that's so special. So let me ask you a question like this. Like the first time I spoke to you, I saw right away that you're such a strong media of like positivity. So I'm wondering like with all this, <laughs> is that not true? <laughs> is that true? Yeah. I mean, when I think back of the four months that we were praying for her to get better, there are those odd, brain injury is so weird because there are those odd cases of someone who's in a coma for 10 years and then like just wakes up. You know, it's not common. You know, right. the prognosis wasn't great, but I was holding on to that, I guess, maybe just right. to not be in, not to have to grieve her. So, you know, people brought us all these stories about this one who woke up and that one was not expected to. And she did show some, a little bit of progress, a little, little bits, like she started moving towards the end of the four months, you know, and almost sometimes seemed like she would react to us coming into a room. So all these things give you hope, even though it's maybe hope against hope. Right. But, um, you know, once it's the reality is there that the person is not going to be with you anymore in this life. I say it's kind of like a wound. As time goes by, like you're bleeding at the beginning and you're bleeding and you're bleeding. And then it slowly starts to scab over. And then like you brush up against something and the scab will open again. Like there's always going to be those triggers right. that bring the tears, upset you. But, you know, as time goes by, it's not like you scar. There's always going to be those things that bring it all back and are, are difficult. But you can't stay still. After she was near for people to say to me, oh, how do you even keep moving ahead? Like, you know, they were like amazed that I didn't just take to my bed and like give up, basically. Right. And, and I guess I'm not really that. I kind of felt like, what good is that going to do? You know, I had grand, granddaughters. Her, her daughters needed me. I had right. other children and grandchildren who needed me. And uh, and I am kind of positive by nature. I don't like being sad. <laughs> you know, okay. I, hate I hate just I hate just like going to those painful places if I don't have to. So I just kind of soldier on, knowing that you know from time to time the, the grief is going to break through and going to be hard. That first year was really tough. You know, where that there's somebody missing at your table. Right. Was she with you normally every month? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. She lived not so walking distance. Yeah. Right, right. Wow. Well, yeah. Do her children, like her older, like her oldest, I guess, do they remember her or she was too little? A little bit. They were six and four. And this teeny, the oldest granddaughter, she was interviewed by the Lynx magazine. She She was. She belonged to Lynx, yeah. How cute. (laughs) And they have an interview like every edition, you know, with somebody. And I saw her interview and she was asked if she remembered her mother. And she said, well, not so much. She remembers her brushing her hair. She, like a couple of very tiny memories. And that was that hurt me because I, I want her to remember her mother really well. But right. Do you tell her stories? Like, do you try to keep her alive for her? Yeah, for sure. For sure. We'll always say, you know, your mommy said or your mommy, you know. Right, right. The hardest, I think, is the, the youngest because she never knew her mother. So there's the. She sees, she sees pictures of her, you know, and we talk about her, but she really has no shyness, you know. To, right, right. Mommy. The, the youngest one who was born the night, you know, she went into coma with, looks just like her. She does, yeah. <laughs> okay. you know, of all the kids, she looks the most like her mother. Wow. You know, sometimes, like, I find my heart catches in my throat sometimes right. when I look at her because right. looks, personality, she's so much like her mother. But it's what also hard for her, you know. Was she named anything like having to do with her sick mother or no? No, her mother was alive when she was born. So they had already decided on a name and that's what they gave her. That's what they gave her. Yeah. Well, so being that you have your positive nature, you think that helps you with your Imuna? Like you kind of can't be positive. I don't know if this is true or not. Like if you're a positive person, like you sort of accept things that are are from Hashem, because if you don't accept it, you kind of automatically become negative. Is that true? Do you think? Well, I, it was a big journey in Amuna for me. It was. You know, <laughs> yeah, there, there are people who would say things to me like, well, just think positive and, you know, and it'll be positive. Like right. thinking positive could change things. And that just right. struck me as kind of, you know. Insensitive. Yeah, just kind of dumb. But, you know, um, on the other hand, like, you know, one of my sons said to me, you have to stay positive. You have to hope for the best. You know, but that's, that, that's not Amuna. Amuna is not thinking that it's going to be good because you're thinking good. Amuna is knowing that whatever Hashem does has a reason, has a purpose, and you might not like it, and it may not be the outcome that you're praying for, but you have to trust that it's somehow for your good. It's like surgery, like a surgery is painful, but it has to be done. Certain things we don't understand why. I used to take the bus to Lakewood. Often that's where she was in care for the last, like, a few months I live in Brooklyn and it got to be too much driving back and forth. So I used to take the bus a lot to Lakewood to visit her. And I could go over the Verrazano Bridge and think, I don't know how they even made this bridge. I don't understand anything about engineering. I hated trigonometry in high school. I, could, I don't understand these basic physical principles and construction. I said, how am I supposed to understand Hashem's mind? There's just no way. It's so complex, you know? And sometimes at the beginning I think, oh, I just have to keep praying, praying, praying. You know, I can't stop praying. I was like remembering that story of the Tana who was dying and, and his Talmudim were praying for him and he couldn't die because yeah. they were praying hard for him and the maid went to the roof and threw a plate off the roof to distract them so that the, the poor man's soul could finally depart. So like I used to keep praying, like almost feeling like I needed to like keep her alive like that. And then at right. one point he finally right. said, like, who do I think I am? Like, there's so many variables in this equation. It's not right. just on my shoulders to keep my daughter alive by praying for her constantly. Mm-hmm. You, you do the hishtabas that you can, but you can't. There's just so many factors in this equation, so many variables that 
you just do the best you can and trust that Hashem is doing things the way they need to be done. And, and that's the real Amuna. Right, right. I relate a lot to that davening thing because I, whatever, I also had, like, I remember different times and I'm like, oh, this happened because you know what? It happened right when I stopped davening. That means if I wanted to stop davening and people would say to me, you you really think you have that much control? Like these big sure, events. You're so um, omnipotent. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, surely it helps. I mean, I do think that to be able to keep my daughter alive longer than, you know, she probably right. medically would have been expected to stay alive. Right, right, yeah. right. So it was a tough year for you because then a few months later you lost a grandson. Yes, yeah. Well, about three months after my daughter was nifter, my grandson went in for a routine surgery and developed sepsis, and the hospital did not pick up on it, which I'm still upset about. Oh my goodness! And almost died. And then he he spent the next six months kind of trying to get back back to himself, but it was just like. One step forward and two steps back, and one step forward and two. I just so he was in the um, hospital the whole time. He was in the hospital for about six months. Wow! How old was he? Did you say he was six? He was was so adorable. Adorable. Yeah. Oh my goodness! And in some ways, like I guess that I don't know. Like I said, when my daughter was sick, it was like this sort of very spiritual experience, and the whole world was behind us. And this, we were just like exhausted already. Like it was just like again. Like wow. you don't think lightning is going to strike twice, you know? Like, right, yeah. right. Again, and it was somewhat, somewhat more private, I think, as an experience because he was a little kid. He wasn't like a popular mora. He wasn't right. someone who knew a brilliant people, and that was that was really hard. And I, as a mother, to watch my daughter lose the son was just miserable. I mean, it was just, I guess it was a distraction for my own grief because I was so focused on helping out my daughter and son-in-law right by that point. Right, but still, I know. And then when he was nifter, we said, okay, he's with his favorite aunt, you know, like, I guess she'll take care of him and Shemayim. And yet, like, there are little pieces of um, things that happened that showed me that Hashem really is in charge and that we used to joke that my daughter was sending us things to help us through it. Like, there's a Gemara that says when a baby boy is born during the year of mourning, it's a Nechama for the family. So my daughter-in-law was expecting. And we got to Miriam's birthday, and I was having a very hard time. I was just, you know, first the first year and those first, mo- you know, things are so hard. And I was kind of a basket case, you know, the night before. And I woke up in the morning, and my son called and said, my wife's in labor. We're going to the hospital. And she had not one boy. She had two boys. Wow. <laughs> two boys on my daughter's birthday. Oh, my so goodness. So it was like, she was like, I don't know. It's like somehow she or Hashem was manipulating things. So that her birthday shouldn't just be like a sad time for me. It should also be the twins' birthday. Like that's my grandson's birthday. And so then some years- now for you, is it like a mixed day or is it their birthday a sad day because it's her birthday? I guess it's a little bit of both, but I don't know. There's also a story I wrote about this once in Mishpacha. This was after my grandson passed away. We had gone to Israel for the Shloshim. He was buried in in They buried um, him in Israel. In Beit yeah. Wow. So the day before the Shloshim at the cemetery, my husband and I went to the hotel and we were going to look for a cab. And then my husband said, you know, what? let's walk through Mamila Mall and we'll catch a cab at the entrance there because it's probably easier to find something. So we took that turn through Mamila. And as we were walking out, we ran into a couple we know from Shul. And it was February. We were like, what are you guys doing here? <laughs> and they looked at us and, and the husband said, you didn't hear? 
He said, no. He said, my father was Nifter, and the Levi is tomorrow. And we said, oh, you know, and this man's, our friend's father was someone who prayed in the same shul, had prayed for our daughter, had prayed for our grandson, a very right. lovely older man that my husband felt very close to. The one was the Leviah. It was two hours after the Shloshim for our grandson in the same cemetery. Oh, wow. Same cemetery. Wow. So we went back the next day. We did the Shloshim. My husband and I hung around and waited for the Leviah. And so the man came. My husband got to help bring the, the mace to the kever, which was very meaningful for him because he felt close to this man. And we're standing around, and we go to the grave site, and then I realized it's like a stone's throw from my grandson's kever. Wow. So when I finished at their father's kever, they went to my grandson's kever. I'm looking at these people, and one of them is standing there, and she's still crying, and I realized she was his mora. One of the daughters of this, the man who was buried was my grandson's mora. Wow. And one of the other siblings came up to me and said, yeah, it's not so often I meet someone who lost a child and a grandchild. And I looked at him and then I remember, you know, I was a little discombobulated because, <laughs> you know, all the emotions, but, and I realized, and it's not somebody I know well, but I know that he lost a son, a boy in a freak accident. And then he also had a child who had a child with some medical issues and, and lost a grandchild too. Wow. It's just so bizarre that we all ended up in the same. And if my husband and I had not left Mamila Mall at the exact, you know, made that decision and gone there exactly at the moment that we had chosen to go, we would not have run into them and we would not have like, you know, had the opportunity and seen how entwined all our lives were. And that really felt like Hashem created that situation for us. He was orchestrating that and he orchestrated everything. He orchestrated even my grandson's death and he orchestrated my daughter's death and he orchestrated all the good things in my life, you know, the all the grandchildren who have been born since since they were Nifter, and the positive as well as the negative. So, again, do you have any granddaughters that are named after her? I do. My daughter, who lost her son, was pregnant while her son was sick. Oh, wow. and two weeks before he was Nifter, she gave birth to a baby girl oh, wow. who was named Sarah Miriam for my daughter. And my son, I guess the baby's almost a year and a half. He has an Adina Miriam. And oh, everyone yeah. else is waiting, waiting for their chance to have a Miriam. Right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So are these your favorite grandchildren? Are they? I don't know. I don't have favorites. They're all yummy. Do you find the comforting? Like personally, I don't find names being so comforting, but I know some people really do. That first one was. The, the very first name was a big comfort. Yeah. Very moving. Yeah. I can't even imagine. So were you and your daughter like bereaved mothers together or like not really because the losses were so different? We were different, but you know, my family was great. We really pulled together and everybody supported everybody and understood everybody. We all understood the grief. And right. That's so nice that you have such a like supportive family. That's such a bracha, right? It, it is. It really is. Yeah. Sometimes you hear these horror stories and it's so nice to hear Baruch Hashem, like the opposite of a horror story, you know? Yeah, no, I think it pulled us closer. We really shared the grief and worked together to help with my granddaughters who didn't have a mommy anymore. So when you write, I know you write a lot, like we said, and I know you write on these topics as like, do you find the writing therapeutic? No, that's not my question. Well, maybe my question is, do you find it therapeutic? But that's the first part. My second part is really like, is it therapeutic that it goes public? Hmm. Interesting. I, I did find it therapeutic at the beginning to write about her. 
I also did one or two articles. I, like I did something for the community magazine, which is the Syrian community magazine. Right. So many people were helped so much. I just felt like I had to thank all these people who did so much for us. You know, right. like, but right. There was a lady when she found out that I was taking the bus to Lakewood. She sent me a check for $500 to help cover the bus fare. You know, Are you like serious? These, yeah, like, you know, people buying clothing for my granddaughter, people, granddaughters, people buying, I, I don't know, just people were so generous with their time and their money and their everything that I really felt I needed to to thank them. So I did that. And I did a few articles. After a while, though, like people identify you with that as that. Like, that's the lady who lost a daughter. Right. Yeah. Right. While, I don't want that to be my whole identity. It's definitely, you know, a part of who I am. It's it definitely has left me a different person in a lot of ways, but it's not my whole identity. And after a while, I didn't want to just write about my daughter who passed away. Right. You know? Right. I, I didn't want to bore people either. <laughs> you, know, you don't want to be that person who's always talking the same Subject. No, but it's not writing just about your daughter. It's really writing about you and your different experiences as you go through grief. Like right. the first year at sight was probably different than the second year at sight. Yeah, yeah, I guess. But I didn't, I wrote about some things. Like I wrote about that coincidence in the cemetery. You know, that story I wrote about a Jewish action. asking me to write something positive about how the Jewish community will rally when someone goes through a hardship. So I wrote a piece about about right. that for her and how, how again how good people were to us right right so can we talk about i mean i think it would be so beneficial to so many people to talk about your son-in-law and that he got remarried and the that way you support him he got remarried at the end of august Baruch Hashem, i give him a lot of credit he waited like close to seven years to get remarried he didn't you know a lot of men panic when they find themselves alone with kids, maybe partly because he did have the level of family support that he had. You know, he wasn't so pressured to like quick, quick, get someone to take care of your house and your kids. Right. But he was very picky. His first priority was his kids, you know, right. someone who would be a good mother to his kids. And, you know, but he, he found somebody and he claims that he got all these signs from, from my daughter that, you know, go ahead with it. This is right. This is good. Do it. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I, mean, I I don't know the specifics, but yeah, I went to the wedding. Uh, my husband didn't feel able to do it, but I went to the wedding and my kids went and I kind of felt like we have to go to show our support and to show his new collar that we're still the grandparents. Like, you know, we want you to be happy, but we still want to be part of your, your new life together. And it was hard. I have a friend, this is going back many years ago, who was widowed and she remarried when her kids were still young. And I remember going to that wedding and we had all loved her first husband so much. And when she remarried, all her friends at the wedding were crying because we missed her, you know, we knew her first husband. We loved him so much. And she wow. was now kind of moving, right, moving on, you know, that was hard. And I, that's what I thought of when my son-in-law got married. Like it was very emotional. He was moving on, but right. on the other hand, you know, when you're when you're late thirties, you're not going to be single your whole life. I would never right. wish that on him. I want him to be happy. Right. I want the kids to have a regular structure. So I don't see them quite as often because they don't need to come to my house after school every day, and they don't need a place for Shabbos every week. And that's better for them that they have that structure of a regular house with a mother and a father and supper on the table in their house and. Not being schlepped, you know, back and forth from one gram of her homework and snacks and one gram of her supper and then go home, you know, 
you are know. you nervous? Like, do you worry? Like, is she really taking good care of them? No, I don't. No, I don't worry about her. She has one daughter of her own who is the same age as my youngest granddaughter there. So no, I don't have any doubts that she takes good care of them. I don't think my son-in-law would have married her if he didn't think that would, would have right. worked. And the kids seem happy. So yeah. That's, you know, that's important. My, my biggest concern is that I just have to make more of an effort now to see the kids. Because before, like Yom Tov came, he'd go to his parents and he'd come to us. Right. For all the right. You know, now her parents are part of the equation. So it's, you know, his parents, her parents, and we're kind of in third position now. So we just have to work a little harder to make sure we keep the Kesher with all of them. That's so painful. Like you're still the grandmother, the exact same amount, but you got pushed to the side. Well, right. nobody's pushing us to the side. Actually, like the past few months, he got married like end of August. And then it was the Chagim. And I kind of, I didn't want to interfere too much when they, you know, when they're just starting their marriage. and right. I haven't imposed myself too much, but they came for Hanukkah and I do see the girls once in a while. And one of my daughters did a Malava Malka and the kids came. So we'll find the right rhythm, you know. Does she come? Like, does she want to be part of the family or she feels uncomfortable a little bit? I think she's a little bit shy, but she's learned, you know, she came over Hanukkah and my daughters were there and they all work in Chinook and they all were busy with shop talk and we ate donuts and it was very relaxed. It was nice. So, wow. Okay. I hope that everyone's going to be comfortable and happy and slowly, slowly. You know, we she has to get used to us. We have to get used to her. And right, right. But she's now the stepmother of my granddaughters. And the day that they get married, she's going to be the one walking down the aisle. And you, we want them to be close. It's the best right. thing for anybody. Right. Yeah. It's like a continuous transition. Yeah. yeah. Like it's always like you know, whatever. I always continuously have to do work on yourself i guess that's what situation is right right but any situation in life is like that i mean life is like that so mm-hmm. uh, um okay so i if there's any like parting message that we should leave off with whether it's to parents that lost a child or to grandparents that lost a child um uh, you have to be kind to yourself you know you, that first year is going to be hard there's even the first couple of years it's just hard even if you're a cheerful person. and So what does being kind mean? Like if you do feel like you want to stay in bed all morning, so stay in bed all morning. You know, you want to eat chocolate and gain five pounds. It's okay. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know let your friends take you out to lunch. There are great groups now for bereaved mothers and for orphan kids and even for men. Like Mayroom and, and Tapestry and Links. And there, there are so many organizations that, that help people. I remember actually that first year, there was another mother in Borough Park who lost a daughter in kind of similar situations to mine. She developed an infection after um, childbirth. And then one day to the next, she passed away and left five kids. And so I had been, I had joined Tapestry and she called and said, will you please call this lady? And, you know, she's having a hard time. So even I think helping her maybe helped me or we helped each other, you know. Right, right. Um, it does. Yeah. It helps to reach out to people, find a support group, find, you know, the only people who understand are the people who have been there, you know, like your friends can sympathize and they can be supportive, but there's nothing like someone who's, who's been there and done that to, you know, to really understand. What else would I say? I don't, you know, the people deal in different ways. Like some people like to hide the pictures of their child. They can't bear to look at them. I'm the kind of person who wants to see pictures of my child. Like I don't want her to be forgotten. I want her, 
in front of me. I want people to talk about her. I want to remember the jokes that she made or the whatever. Writing writing was helpful for me. It was I was lucky that I have a job that I like. You know, I, I like to write and it, you know, it's absorbing for me. And and as I said, I have lots of I have four families in walking distance in Brooklyn. So I have like my I have a I have an empty nest, but a very not empty nest. Right. In and out, in and outs and and one in Lakewood and one in Eritrea. So also just staying busy is so important. Just right. be involved, you know, find something that you're that you enjoy doing, you're passionate about and get involved. Do things Louis Nishmat, your child. Do things that are meaningful to your to your child. You know, pay it forward, I guess. Like someone opened a gamach in my daughter's memory, which was really amazing. Wow. Yeah. And it's still I guess I didn't do so much of that. My way of paying forward is to help take care of her kids. When I would think to myself, what would Miriam want me to be doing? The answer right. is always, I'm sure we'd just say, Ma, just take care of my kids. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. Um, well, say also, I think it's different. Like if you lose somebody very suddenly and you lose somebody after an illness, you know, because, you know, if someone dies in a car accident, it's, it's a shock, you know, and, you know, then you have that shock of like not knowing what you're going to wake up to in the morning. And, and it's when you have someone who's sick for a long time, you have a lot of that like anticipatory grief. Right. Of, you know, like you, you know, it might not end well, you know, right. for a right. long time. And so you do a lot of crying before you actually get to the shiva. So I, I don't know if that's good, if that's, you know, it just, but it's not so unexpected and it's, I don't know. You've had plenty of time to cry in the, <laughs> in the months leading up to it. Yeah. Wow. I mean, the truth is you weren't even like, if she would have came out of the coma, you weren't even sure if she was going to be brain damaged or not. That's right. That's right. Maybe in some ways it's a chesed because I think knowing my daughter, she would not want to, wanted to have been a burden to anybody. Right. I, I heard a, a marshal once from, I forget who, about about death and and what it's like and, and it was described as like when a a boat leaves the pier like in the olden days when you didn't have email and you know right. <laughs> when somebody went from like england to america you didn't know if they were going to make it there and you didn't know if you would see them again right it would be a very long time before you'd see them so people would come to the pier to bid everybody goodbye and when the boat pulls away everybody's crying because everyone's leaving and and you might not see them again and you're just right. Set, I'm set. And then the boat pulls away and it's it's very big as it leaves and it gets and it's still big, still big, but as it goes further and further and further, it looks smaller and smaller and smaller. And people start to go about their their lives again. And then it keeps sailing, sailing, sailing. And finally it arrives at another shore. And there's other people on that shore and they're saying, They've arrived. They've arrived. They're here. And I always found that so moving. Like that's such a beautiful muscle for this world and the next world. You know, some of us are on this side and some of us are on the other side. And sooner or later, we all have to cross that ocean. But there are people waiting for us on the other side and we will see, you know, our loved ones. Again, that, that gives me a lot of strength to know that, you know, one day, Mashiach, whatever, we will we'll be with them again. Wow, beautiful. Okay, well, thank you so, so much. I really appreciate it. And I, I hope I didn't, like make you too sad <laughs> no no i find it like just moving i guess or I mean, it is sad also but we miss them you know we, we know they're in a better place we know they're in a better place but we're the ones who continue on without them but it, it does give me some comfort to know that you know someday we will be together and i'm a grandma now so like 120 is a lot closer than it was <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> when I was 25, you know, it's like you just, you know, you don't know what the future will bring. And I don't know. It's just nice to, to feel that we will be reunited, you know, eventually at the, at some point. So. Okay. Well, again, thank you. And the sewer stovos, and you should just. Amen, amen. Wish them to comfort you for all the losses that you've been okay. through also. And, um, and just give you a lot of bracha going forward because there is so much good that, you know, the, there's a lot of good in this world. And as much as we've lost, I, you know, I think we, we've had more lives join the family than leave the family. Right. Everybody <laughs> was nifter. I mean, I don't know about maybe 10 grandchildren were born since then and two wow. sets of twins. Two, two sets, sets of twin boys. Yeah. Oh, wow. Klein Hara. So we have really been very blessed. And I try to concentrate on that. And, you know, can't always have the the good without having some bad, you know, on the on the whole, Hashem has been so good to us and we've been so blessed and I try to keep that in mind first. And Okay. Beautiful. Yeah, I still wish my daughter was around to see her kids grow up. And <laughs> you have just listened to an episode by Mrs. Miriam Ribiet. For more episodes or for additional information about future episodes, visit our website at www.chevralomdemishnah.org or email mribiet at chevralomdemishnah.org. To submit questions or comments for this speaker, to suggest another speaker who might be mechazek others, or to sponsor a podcast, visit chevralomdemishnah.org forward slash podcast.